the Buffalo Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Monique Gordion, and the great news is you found the podcast, a space for stories that will arouse a smile and inspire us as we tap into our collective experiences. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to the Buffalo Podcast. It's always good to have you back and Oh, I'm joy of joy. I have Dr. Olivia Lesler here today on the podcast. Hi, Olivia. How are you? Hi, good. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I think we met in around 2019. I saw you as a GP. Yes. And as we were just chatting after my first consultation with you, because I was pretty happy I'd found someone who was thinking the same way I wanted to go, you left. (laughs) <laughs> you yes. went overseas. I was, I was like, oh my god, she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a, um, I was a GP trainee at the time, um, and that was my second posting. Mm. So we meant to sort of move around every six to twelve months or so, and that was my second posting. And you know, the patients were great, the staff <laughs> were great. Yeah. Um, but it was very obvious to me by that stage that my life was not going to be spent in a GP practice. Yeah, 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 and uh, and now you're you're practicing in various parts of the world in London, I believe, in Brisbane, Gold Coast, is and you speak at conferences around the world as well. So it's yeah, your scope has expanded. Changed, it's changed. yes, definitely has changed. <laughs> Um, look, you know, it wasn't about not wanting to see patients. I still see patients. My mm. primary clinic is actually in Sydney at mm-hmm. uh, Singulum Health, um, which is a, a brain optimization center, actually. But I get to oh. practice complex chronic condition man- management there. Um, so it's not about not wanting to see patients. It's that I couldn't see patients in the way that I wanted to see patients when I was caught in the Medicare system. Uh. For those who are overseas, Medicare is our public health system. Mm. That it's it's actually a fantastic system that we get free free uh, medical assistance. Pretty much, it's great. Yes. Yeah, but it yeah. has its limitations for doctors who want to do things that are what the medical industry here would call unconventional. But they're it's actually not unconventional at all is it (laughs) exactly it's all about perspective and yes about where you know which country you're even talking uh, Mm. in or from so for example Mm. uh, uh, hypothermia therapy that's Mm. standard of care in parts of europe and in japan Mm. right but that's that doesn't get a look in here in australia that's hypothermia therapy is a recommended adjunctive therapy for cancer in the u.s recommended Mm. on cancer.gov Oh, really? Yeah. I did have hypothermia when I uh, early on in my, uh, uh, you know, cancer journey. Um, I don't think it was exactly the same equipment as what they have in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, but it was pretty powerful stuff. Where did you go? <laughs> Uh, so I went at Southport to the master oh. clinic there with, mm-hmm. um, Soraya. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that was a good little practice actually to be a part of. Soraya was really, uh, really. I never met her actually. Oh yeah. Sadly she's passed, which is mm. really sad, but, mm. uh, she was, you know, she was right on the cutting edge of all of the things that were going on. She was great within mm. the scope of what she could do. And, 
you've got a story to tell us today. Well, actually, it kind of uh, starts where we met. Uh huh. Right. So you came in. Can we talk about why yeah. you came to see me? Yeah, absolutely. So you came in because you had cancer. Yeah. And um, I remember telling you about the fact that I was very interested in cancer because my mm. own mother had passed away of breast cancer. Mm. And um, that's right. I had, by this stage, met Sandra Cabot. Mm. And you knew who she was. Yeah, the, she was liver the liver diet. cleansing diet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by this stage, she'd actually taken me under her wing. And uh-huh. in that cancer, cancer survival strategies book, um, which I gave you, the electronic mm-hmm. one, which I gave mm-hmm. you, um, she actually asked me to write, and I did write the section on hypothermia therapy in oh, the book. Okay. Right. So, in recent, well, I, I already kind of developed an interest in um, temperature therapies uh, for hormesis, for autophagy, for cancer, for anxiety, you know, lo- lots of different things. And so, I'd already developed this interest. And when I met her, I was telling her about it. Oh. And that's why she said, oh, why don't you write the section on hypothermia therapy for cancer? So I did, met you, gave you the book. And the reason why I left is because I had actually gone to a biocuticals education symposium, mm-hmm. um, research symposium in Sydney in March or April, I think it was. in Sid- Yeah, in Sydney. This is 2019. And when I was there, there was a psychiatrist, psychiatrist, neurologist, uh, Jay Lombard, um, who was actually, I think, one of the founding members of the IFM. He was on stage and he was talking about um, the heat shock response. And he was talking about heat shock proteins. Now, don't worry about that, except that I knew about them because I had been researching it and I had written about it. Mm. So he asks... What else other than heat induces heat shock proteins? And so I was like, oh, there we go. I know <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And I said, uh, cryotherapy. Yes. And he said, no. Oh. They're called heat shock for a reason. And I'm a bit taken aback. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, did I get this wrong? This is really embarrassing. This is a very big conference, right? I, there were at least, you know, whatever, six, 700 people. Um, in the audience at that stage. So I then had a quick look and I was right. I didn't say anything during his during his talk, but we just happened to be sitting next to each other at a dinner. Oh, I love that. I love night, that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so I said, Oh, excuse me, do you know, do you remember me? And he said, No. And I said, Oh, you asked about heat shock proteins. I said cryotherapy. You said no. Actually, this is the paper from Nature in 2015. And he reads it and he says, could you send that to me? And I said, yeah, of course. So I sent it through to him. Yeah. And then we started talking and we didn't stop talking for about two days. Um, and, you know, within the first three hours of chatting, he offered me a job in New York. Wow. That's why I left. Yes. I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Gold Coast, New York, opportunities, I can understand. That's yeah, I mean, great. It, 
but you know, and, and I was very fortunate at the time, fortunate because, you know, I don't have anything to sort of hold me down such that I can say yes to these opportunities, mm. right? Mm. So no no partner, no children. And so I left. Mm. And, you know, I I don't have I'm not able to practice medicine in New York, right? Mm. And I said, Look, I, I can't practice medicine. He goes, That's fine. I'll just call you a health coach. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I thought, right. And I thought, well, you know, an opportunity to learn under yeah. Jay Lombard is huge. Yeah. And he was just so generous with his time and his information and his contacts. I mean, he was taking me around, introducing me to everybody, mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. Deepak Chopra, we went to um, um, Mark Hyman's place. Oh, really? Um, when Jay did a podcast with him. He took me everywhere and he just, he was so, he was just very, very generous with his time. Mm, mm. Um, and I learned a lot from him because what happened was we wound up becoming the Neuroimmunology Associates of New York, which was my first foray into neuroimmunology. What What is this? Mm. Um, so the Neuroimmunology Associates of New York, Nanny, N-A-N-Y, was um, Anne Maitland who is a very famous immunologist himself, a neurologist, and me, the health coach. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and I was just cutting my teeth then. I was cutting yeah. my teeth on diet, on supplements, on everything, because I'm a generalist. Mm. I am a, I wanted to be a GP for a reason, and that hadn't really changed. Mm. I wanted to be a generalist. I wanted to know across the board. I wanted to speak to patients. I love interacting with people, networking, and all the rest of it. Yeah. It suited me down to a team. Mm-hmm. And because I couldn't, of course, oh, oh, I was going to say I couldn't afford to live in New York. I couldn't. I can't. Right. Uh, um, and I just happened to have a, an ex-partner who were very, very close. And he has an apartment in New York and he was it was free. No, he wasn't there because he, you know, he had gotten married and his wife lived in Texas. And so he obtained his apartment in New York. But he was living in Texas with his wife and his baby. And he said, that's fine. You stay there. Oh so I had this apartment in New York. Yeah. And wow. it was just, wow. it was um, a, a fantastic experience. So, but to afford to live there, I kept coming backwards, backwards and forwards to Australia. Um, and here in Australia, I would just do, you know, house call doctor or those uh, drive around GP type things. Yeah. You know, solid for two weeks, make my money and then go. Oh, because you couldn't earn money in the States. No green Mm -hmm. card, right? Mm -mm. No green card, wasn't earning money. No, I was just there for, essentially, I was just there to soak things up. Yeah. It was an opportunity and I was going to take it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's fantastic because money isn't always the deciding factor in in pursuing our goals, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then through Jay, well, actually, at one of these trips back to Australia, I was having coffee in Burley somewhere, and then I get this call, right? And this friend, we've talked about this story many times. I've discussed it on uh, a couple of other podcasts as well, so she, she's very happy for me to tell this story. But I get this call from a, a woman. Her name is Kate. Her oh, stories, yeah, I know Kate, on, yes. Yes, her story is on Instagram. <laughs> yes. And she goes, oh, hi, my name is Kate. Um, I was given your number by a friend who said that you were, you know, uh, an open-minded doctor. I said, yep. 
She goes, I have cancer, mm. right? Stage four terminal lung cancer. Mm. I said, okay. And she said that um, she had been going to an alternative cancer place in Mexico. Yeah. And that she was doing really well, actually, because they'd actually, <clears throat> the hospital in Australia had given her three months, six months with electinib, but she had pushed past that now mm. and she was feeling great. Mm. She goes, I'm back, but I kind of need help to maintain my regimen, mm. right? And that's testing for bloods, making sure she was okay, blah, blah, blah. I said, sure, no problem. And then she said, oh, do you need anything else? I'm like, no, you need help. I'm here to help. <laughs> and so, and that was, and so Kate and I are actually now very, very good friends. I call yeah. her one of my best friends, actually. Oh, that's great. Yeah. She is no evidence of disease. Yeah. Um, she's obviously no longer my patient, but yeah. she is, um, yeah, she's a classic example mm. of psychoneuroimmunology. Mm. About Did that, how these things influence each other. Do you want to, for people who aren't aware of that term, do you want to just flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, so psychoneuroimmunology, PNI, actually it's psychoneuroendoimmunology with the endo being oh. endocrinology. Essentially, it's just a way for doctors to try and make sense of the fact that all these different systems affect each other, inform mm. each other. You cannot, you cannot take an organism like a human so complex so beautiful forged in the fires of evolution over millions of years and then divide them up into these organ systems which apparently don't talk to each other yeah 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 that's half our problem because mm. back in the day when people only had one two issues that okay yeah. now with complex chronic conditions mm. you have to understand how these systems are interacting with each other. Yeah. Otherwise, what happens is that you get the patient seeing a cardiologist who puts them on meds mm. for their heart. Mm. Then they see the respiratory physician who puts them on meds for their lungs. Mm. Then they see the hepatologist who puts them on meds for their liver. Mm. And nobody's talking to each other, obviously. They don't have time. And the GP is meant to somehow kind of figure these Thing, but that's not really their job either. Mm. So it's it's a it's a difficult situation for everybody involved uh, when it comes to these complex chronic conditions, which are really emerging as a, a proper threat. Yeah. Um, in this day and age. Uh, anyway, so psychoneuroimmunology is or PNI is essentially that mm, those intersections between psychology, the nervous system, neurology, mm. and immunology or your mm. immune system mm. yeah uh, you know I, recently I did a, a podcast about my personal story my cancer story oh not my cancer story my life story sorry cancer was a very small component of that and one of the things I shared was uh, for me a, a, a big impact on my health becoming healthy was communicating nervous system um with my psychology. So I, I used to be very much an adrenaline kind of person, uh, got burnt out, all of that sort of stuff. And so coming into, now I'm probably butchering this, but just coming into a state of calm and a space for my Im immune system to flourish as opposed to constantly bombarding it with stress and life choices that were kind of burdening me 
yeah. So I well, found that you know, was most very doctors helpful. will agree. Most mm. doctors will agree with that, right? Mm. We all understand that there's that sympathetic and parasympathetic. Yep. I mean, you can obviously go down the Porges theory of the um, you know, different two aspects to the parasympathetic nervous system. But anyway, sympathetic, parasympathetic. Yeah. Fight or flight. Yeah. Rest and digest. I mean, yep. this is one on one that we learn yep. in medical school that mm. most people know. Um, and so it it's common sense that you would not be able to regenerate, rejuvenate, replenish when you are constantly in a fight or flight state, mm. right? Because fight or flight necessarily means that you have to pump out a bit more cortisol mm. and cortisol is an immune suppressant. You know, it, it, it makes sense and we all innately know this, mm. although innately know this as well. But, and I was saying to you before we started um, recording, doctors are are very happy to say stress can mm. cause illness mm. because it does. We know that. But for some reason, generally speaking, the conversation doesn't quite extend past the full stop at the end of that story. So back when we still believe that um, stress caused uh gastric ulcers and actually mm. in a roundabout way it kind of still but anyway I'll, I'll go into that later but back when we believe that stress equals gastric ulcers before they won the nobel prize to show that it, it was actually a type of bacteria right mm. mm-hmm. if we knew that stress caused gastric ulcers or stress causes illness then what are we doing about it why are we not learning more about the psychology of Zen? Why are we not talking to patients about their sleep habits and their relationships? You know, we flick patients off to a counselor or a psychologist. And on top of that, because those those health practitioners aren't doctors or specialists, there is this, you know, it's not as important. I mean, it's important, but it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and um, that's that's fascinated me for. But we're also in a zeitgeist or in a, a world that that actually um, rewards busyness, mm. that rewards stress. Mm. You know, it's like a badge of honour. Oh, my God, I'm so busy. You know, um, my business is growing and, you know, this productivity. Mm. Like I have a friend. Toxic I say, productivity. How are you? Oh, yes, I've been very productive today. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, like is that how you class your joyful you day yeah, i've been right. productive <laughs> right so, so it's the units of me- it's the the yeah. units by which we measure ourselves right and our our purpose i mean i'm like that to be honest with you mm. you know I, well, I, I yeah i think we all are but so, you know this you know, like you were talking of what you were talking about there we have this whole kind of system coming at us which is contra contradicts that yeah, our value is often placed on our busyness, as yeah. opposed to how easeful we are. We kind of think, "Oh, yeah, you're a zeny person. How mm. nice for you." But I'm, you know, a, I'm was, a productive person. I make it happen, baby. <laughs> you know? It was meeting Kate actually that started uh, getting me thinking about that kind of stuff. Oh, really? Pray tell. Right? Because because it was part of her healing journey. Yeah, where she had to start. It wasn't just about sick equals pills nothing mm. else you can do mm. it 
And of course, for those of us who already kind of initiated into this, then we are talking about sleep and sun exposure, appropriate sun exposure. And we're talking about, you know, um, uh, supplements and diet. Okay. But she was the first person to start telling me that these doctors who were trying to help her were also discussing trauma, intergenerational trauma, psychology, fight flight, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. So anyway, it was... Uh, just a bit of a chat here and there blah 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 right so by this stage I'm still in New York or going backwards and forwards to New York and um, she says to me Kate says to me mm. uh, I'm going back to Mexico to go for another round um, of treatments I've told the clinic about you they'd love to meet you ah. and if you'd like to come and that you know it's a two-week kind of like a little bit of a holiday as well now this by this stage we are friends yeah okay and um, okay, right? It's another one of those, yeah, sure. I've got nothing else going on. So I went from New York to meet her in LA. And from LA, we went to Mexico. Yeah. Now, before I leave New York, Jay says to me, oh, when you're in LA, you have to meet a guy that I wrote a book with back in the day. Mm. His name is Dr. Chris Renner. And he is a, um, uh, a concierge medical practitioner. One of the big ones, actually. I'm Googling him, can't find much more than just the website. I'm like, okay, cool. I wound up meeting Chris on the phone, actually, because he was overseas himself uh, giving a talk. But we met on the phone, and it was simply because I was going to go to L.A. and therefore needed to meet up with this guy. So yep. get in contact on the phone. We wound up chatting for three hours. Oh. <laughs> and he offers me a job. He goes, oh. if you wanted to move to L.A., I'll give you a job here. <laughs> What? man right so go to LA um Chris isn't there yet so we're pus pushing back the actual meeting greets in person to when he gets back yeah LA meet Kate then we go to Mexico and it just so happens that what just so happens that when I'm there Dr. Tony Jimenez who is mm. the chief medical officer for Hope for Cancer mm. is also in town now he's only ever at the clinic once a month yeah and I think he's only there for like four or five days. Anyway, that was his time to be there too. Mm. So we meet. He says, I've heard a lot about you, et cetera, et cetera. We go out for a meal. And we're talking more about our philosophy when it comes to patients, to health, to medicine, to drugs, to cancer. And by the end of the meal, he goes, I'm about to give a um, talk through Asia. Why don't you come? <laughs> so... <laughs> you know you you obviously have something mm. about you that draws people in you know you have something that invites people to collaborate with you that's pretty special. I know what it is yeah what is it I'm enthusiastic Ah, and, and, I and, and curious right yes I'm enthusiastic yeah. and I'm curious and yeah. I I want to be a sponge yeah. Right, these amazing doctors. All you can do is learn from, really mm. learn from them. Mm. Um, and I, I'm, like I said, I'm really lucky. I don't, you know, there's nothing sort of holding me back from saying yes. And so I do. Mm. I say yes. Mm. So from Mexico, I then go back to Australia, work for two weeks. I mean, seven days a week, twelve hours a day to make <laughs> enough money to then do this speaking tour of Asia. Wow. First stop was um, 
uh, Thailand. So I've yeah. se- I've seen that special. He he goes to all the. Uh, I don't know that was before me. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All so, right. um, <clears throat> but we meet up with a lot of the people oh, who was who in were that. in that. Yeah, in that documentary, mm. right? So mm. again, I get to meet all these wonderful people mm. doing wonderful things. Mm. Um, so we go. I give a couple. He gives me stage time. So I give ah. a talk, a couple of talks in Bangkok, and then we go to Tokyo. Um, give a talk there. It is phenomenal. I learn so much. Wow. Not just from the other practitioners, but from the patients, because these are mm. patients I would never be exposed to previously. Mm. Right? The cultural dif- differences also give that extra perspective, and the you know the mm. Thai and the Japanese people are just lovely. Mm. Really, they were just so they're so eager to receive information, but they're so open with the information they give to. Mm. And I I wind up meeting a couple of professors professors where I'm in Tokyo, very open-minded people. Well, I say open-minded. It's open-minded. It's compared to what I've been used to, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas for, uh, these practitioners, these professors, it's not about being open-minded or not. It's, well, what, you know, they, they're not as married to um, guidelines. Mm. It's also right. What is the site saying? Where is Where are we going next with this? Mm. Our patients' feeling, you know, it's the true embodiment of evidence-based medicine. Mm. So in Australia, I feel as if evidence-based medicine is always about what's the evidence for that? Where's the RCT? Where's the study? You know, it feels what's that a, like RCT? that's what Return. Randomized control trial. Okay. Right? So so the systematic reviews, um, a- analyses of lots of different trials. The, yeah, there is absolutely zero doubt that that is the highest pinnacle of evidence that any intervention can have. But we're not taught, it feels anyway, maybe the newer generation is coming through, but we're not taught about the fact that not everything is amenable to a randomized controlled trial. Mm. Not everything is amenable to double-blinded studies. On top of that, when we've never been given a talk about the economics of these sorts of things, how much does it actually cost mm. to do these trials? In other words, who can afford them? And mm. we all know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> come back in. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, and and then when I was in Tokyo, I then, you know, happened to be with this group of people where they then, um, invited me to come back to speak um, at the uh, annual Integrative Cancer Conference. Mm. Wow! So, so that was 2019. That's a big year. It's a big year. Wow! Finished. Oh my God! Really? Right? Because because then um, I do go back to LA at some point, mm. and I do essentially um, get my contract signed. Uh, to work at Lifespan Medicine. And it's only when I'm there that I realize how fortunate I am. This doctor is amazing. He is knowledgeable. He's wise. He is compassionate. He is without airs. The humility that this man exudes is something I need to learn. Mm. Right, he is so different from me, and I, I, I'm 
so excited to learn from him. And, you know, it was only after one or two days that I was at the clinic that I realized just how uh, the caliber of patients that he looks after. Mm. You know, it's any almost any Hollywood celebrity or billionaire in the U.S. that you can think of. He, he looks after them, right? And he really does look after them. Oy. I mean, but he still is in the States, though, and they do have... Um some limitations on what you can do there, right? Or is they they do they? but they do but nowhere near Australia um, because it's not universal healthcare. So it's either and it, of course uh, yes. We're not talking about humanitarian aid here. That's that's no. a different kettle of fish. Yeah. But because it's not universal healthcare, um maybe we should just talk about universal healthcare and limitations. So we are both in agreement that universal healthcare and Medicare system in Australia, NHS in the UK, mm. is amazing. We've mm. both benefited from the system, mm. and I will, I will fight tooth and nail to keep the system going because yes. it, the it, the benefits outweigh the downsides. Yeah, hundred percent. The problems creep in when, first of all, we don't acknowledge that there are pitfalls to universal healthcare. That's the mm -hmm. first thing. Mm. Um, the second is that we forget that a lot of the decisions that surround what gets goes in our guidelines is driven by politics and economics. Mm. So it's a bit of an eye opener for you know having been in the states now for for a year or so when I was there, and also other other doctors who I know come from the U.S. especially. Or, or for parts of Europe, not mm. not the UK, but from Europe, mm. who will go, oh, um, you know, the 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 observation is that we use a lot of drugs mm. as part of our protocols. Mm. There was a British medical journal um, study that came out last year, twenty, yeah, last year, twenty twenty two, and um, it actually looked at a few first world English speaking countries. And it was an investigative article basically talking about what percentage of the regulatory body's income comes from industry. Mm. In other words, how much of their income comes from the very people they're meant to be regulating? Australia came in at number one, mm. the largest percentage compared to the US, UK, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what percentage that is that our TGA's funding comes from industry? No. 96%. Mm. So, so TGA is a therapeutic guidelines. Yeah, therapeutic guidelines Australia. Guidelines Australia. And they're the ones who uh, give approval for certain drugs and not approval for other drugs, right? Yes. Or and supplements. Approval, or... approval for interventions. Interventions, yeah. Mm. You know, there is... Um, there are far more eloquent, educated, and wise doctors who have gone into this time and time again, who've got mm. amazing blogs and substacks and so on and so forth. Um, uh, Vinay Prasad is one of them who writes extensively about this. And I think it, it's just that we need to be realistic about this, mm. right? Mm. I prescribe medications. I understand pharmaceutical 
companies needing to make profit. That, mm. that that is the nature of the beast. I don't understand why we get so upset about it. That is the nature of the beast. What I what I get upset about is that we let the beast oh. determine our, what's allowed and what's not allowed. Right. Right, and we yeah. let the beast run rampant in our home. Mm. That's what I have. Mm. I take issue with. Mm. Right. Whereas if we understand the nature of the beast mm. and we can absolutely work together. Yes. But we need to we need to remember who the master is. Yeah. And the master are the patients, the yeah. taxpayers. Not the government, but the patients and the taxpayers. Mm. Mm. Anyway, um source now. <laughs> <laughs> but you By know, this it, stage I'm usually throwing plates. So <laughs> again, you know, one of the difficulties with that is that a lot of patients don't know about these other opportunities that are out there for alternatives, not opportunities. Um, um opportunities. But, yeah, opportunities, alternatives. Um, you really have to sort of go outside the box and start looking, doing a bit of research, and uh, you right. know. And, and, you know, specifically, let's just say cancer. I think the, the scariest thing for patients and for me as well mm. is that even if there was something that has pretty good evidence mm. and that is used in other countries, let's just say hypothermia therapy. Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you take that to an oncologist in universal healthcare where that is not part of the guidelines, mm. you will very rarely it seems in my experience and in my patient's experience, you will very rarely get someone who goes, oh, that's interesting, let me look into that. And to yeah. be fair, it's because their hands are tired. Even if they said, oh, yeah. that looks like a good idea, what can yeah. you do about it, right? No. I um, actually spoke to my oncologist about hypothermia mm. and they said, oh, no, you don't qualify. There's only one little disease or something, I can't remember what it was, that you're allowed to have hypothermia because they actually have a year yeah. at the Gold Coast uh, University Hospital. And I yeah. said, can't I do it? Because and she goes, no. What? no. And it's like hyperbaric oxygen as well, right? We yeah. have seven, nine indications in Australia for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, but there are more indications in other countries. Yeah. And if you're looking at what Tel Aviv University and Mm. Uh, is pumping out with uh, the research they're pumping out with regards to hyperbaric oxygen therapy, neurocog issues with long COVID, for example. Yeah, yeah. That is then something that I certainly talk to my patients about. Yeah. Because the, I mean, look, with every patient, you of course have to do a risk benefit analysis. There has mm. to be that conversation. Mm. And there's also the risk benefit analysis also includes opportunity costs. Mm. Now, I, I'm not here to decide how my patients should be spending their money. I do always start my con my consultations, letting patients know that even if they chose not to do any of these uh, adjunctive therapies, they would possibly still heal because yeah. I believe in PNI. So psychoneuro, yeah. I truly believe that the majority of uh, uh, the majority of of what is um, available available to us to heal is here and here. Yeah, I yeah. truly believe that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of these adjunctive sort of therapies are very expensive. Yes, right. And like, exactly. I, I can't afford hyperbaric. I would love to do that, but I, you know, I'm on a. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to talk about that. But, you know, it's expensive, a lot of these things. It is expensive. expensive. And so then people get, um, you know, 
Well, it's like, well, I, I can't afford that. And okay. Mm. So you do what you can, mm. right? Mm. And even though we've started talking about hypothermia, hyperbaric oxygen and all the rest of it, mm. the fundamentals that I think most good doctors will be talking to patients about sleep, mm. mindset, mm. nutrition, mm. adequate sunlight exposure, mm. movement. Mm. I mean, that's the... And all this other fancy stuff, that's moot if you don't get this right. Oh, I just agree with you so much, 100%. Right. 100%, yeah. You know? And so, like I said, it's about letting people know that there are options. And part of getting, letting people know about options is to give them hope. Mm. And I, I fundamentally disagree with anybody who talks about false hope. What does that even mean? Yeah. Right? For yeah. me, my definition of hope is the absence of despair. Yeah. Yeah. So someone lying on their deathbed, it is time. Mm. The game is over. Mm. That person can still have hope. Yeah. Which yeah. is the absence of despair. Yeah. And that's where the mindset comes in. Mm-hmm. Is and I believe that's what gets you through is right. hope. For me, right. that's that's the thing that's got me through. Like I've been clear for two years now mm-hmm. from stage four. I think know. most people think of hope or most doctors think of hope as being, you know, cure. Chill. He's yeah. talking about cure. Nobody's talking cure. about cure. Yeah, mm. cure. Nobody's talking about cure, right? Don't get me wrong. I've seen lots of people cure. Yeah. But when we're talking about hope, it is a, this is not a mutually inclusive thing with cure. So, when we're talking with bias about these things, just just check yourself, basically, mm. right? Mm. And um, I go back to Australia mm. because um, because my cousin got married. That was the first thing, and the second thing I wanted to then come to Australia, sort out my visa, and then pack my stuff and move back. Now, by this stage, I still have a suitcase in LA. Um. I got back to Australia in March 2020. And then uh, everybody knows this so that story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Of course. Of course. So you didn't get back to L.A.? No, I only got back to L.A. for the first time in January this year. Wow. And the friend that has my suitcase can't find it. But anyway, oh. <laughs> I, don't even know what I'm, I don't even know what I'm missing. Um <laughs> And so I was sort of um, in no man's land here in Australia for the first sort of six months because I didn't, I just assumed, oh, yeah, I'll be back in June. I'll, I'll be back in August. I'll be back. I'm not sure when I'm coming back. Yeah. Right. And uh, and the last two years sort of not necessarily lockdown. I mean, Australia lockdown as a whole, yes, I certainly, I was living in Queensland at the time. I was very lucky compared yes. to people living in Victoria yeah. or Melbourne. And, um, but it, it helped me shape other parts of my medical brain, my medical mind. The kind of questions, the kind of things that we were talking about before with the BMJ and the TGA and who makes the rules and who makes the guidelines. And, you know, these are the kind of questions that I've been honing the last two years because it was right smack bang in our faces, mm, right? Definitely. How easy it was to get cancelled when you said anything against the narrative, how quickly people fell back onto, instead of where's the evidence for that, mic drop, 
because mm. everything apparently the onus is on me mm. um or integrative doctors trying to ask questions for their patients mm. um it went from where's the evidence for that mic drop to follow the science mic drop science is never settled we know that hypothesis so, right <laughs> right it's the uh it's the ability to debate and to question reasonably mm. that that gives science its strength mm. so it was very it's been a very long difficult and upsetting road the last mm. couple of years mm. in that time i was really lucky um so just before i left for uh just before i had left for the states i had i happened to um have gone for a conference a seminar sorry where professor pete smith an immunologist allergist here in queensland was speaking now to be fair i was kind of stalking him because i actually wanted to meet <laughs> uh dr valencia suta now she um was very involved in the food chemical intolerances world food allergies and all that and at that stage i was very interested in food and nutrition in the context of conventional medicine mm -hmm. what do we actually know that conventional doctors aren't talking about mm. um and how can that benefit patients in a wider scope um and valencia and pete worked together ah so i was reading up on her and then there was a flyer that came through at the gp practice that i met you at and the flyer was for gps to attend this talk by professor pete smith mm. of um uh queensland allergy i went oh that's where she works excellent i'll go to this <laughs> i'll go to this seminar and speak to him and see if he can introduce me to valencia mm. go there and would you believe it he, he happens to sit opposite me at the table for dinner because he i i, I was sat down he gave his talk and when he came he sat down here opposite me. So I then, hello, my name is Olivia, blah, blah, blah. And I was just, you know, asked, asked him a few questions about whatever I can't remember now. I mean, he goes, oh, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Da, da, da. I'm so sorry I have to go. I'm flying to Portugal tomorrow. Oh. I was like, oh, okay. But he gave me his um, uh, email address, I think it was. So then I emailed him and I said, oh, when you're in Portugal, do the X, Y, Z. Because in 2019, I happened to have gone to Portugal for something or other. Oh, that's right. The... Uh, uh, Eurovision anyway oh um, really <laughs> <laughs> and so we maintained this kind of email uh, uh, chat not, yep. not much maybe email once a month let's just say yeah. but now that I'm back in Queensland I email him and I say um, hey I'm back thanks for sending through those papers the last time would you like to catch up and discuss them and that's how I got my job with Queensland Allergy and Pete Smith <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> so I now help um, I now help Pete with co very complex patients where the conventional guidelines or the medications aren't enough to keep them um, settled with their mast cell activation syndrome or their allergies or their histamine intolerance or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and then it was through Pete that I was introduced to the National Center for Neuroimmunology and Emerging Diseases at Griffith University, where I'm now an adjunct senior lecturer. Um, and it was through a patient in LA who is also Australian and happens to be back in Australia as well because of the whole COVID thing. And it was through that patient that I met Charlie Teo. Oh, then Charlie Teo. Right. <laughs> who then offered me a job in Sydney. And that's why I have oh, that job. In, oh, in you were Char You know, I met Charlie Teo at Nairobi Airport. What? 
Yeah, I met Charlie Teo at Nairobi Airport, you know, in Kenya. You bumped into him? I bumped into him. Yeah, we were on the same plane. And I, you know, I I had a chat with him telling him, yeah, how how much I admire his work. And him and a few people were doing, were climbing Kilimanjaro, raising, raising funds for something. He has that photo in his house. Of of what him climbing oh, Kilimanjaro? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> well, I have a photo of me standing next to him at, at Nairobi Airport. That's so fantastic. Yeah, small world, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Well, that, that the brain clinic I was telling you about in Sydney. That's uh, myself, Charlie Teo, and a, uh, a psychiatrist, Mark Ryan. The three of us. Wow. So you're coming from the psychoneuro side of things, whereas he's. He's a brain surgeon, right? So yeah, he's a brain uh, for surgeon. For those who don't know, Charlie Teo, Doctor Charlie he, Teo. Yeah, he's a very famous neurosurgeon. He pretty much invented um, minimally invasive endoscopic neurosurgery. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's amazing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So at this clinic, what we do is we do so connectome right. mapping of the brain. So oh. we we are able to do an fMRI, a functional uh, MRI, and then essentially visualize the electrical highways of the brain, um, which originally was to help neurosurgeons to to plan their neurosurgery so that they wouldn't be cutting into particular parts. I mean, everything looks white when you take this, you know, when you're getting in there. But if you were able to correlate that with what you see on the screen of that patient's connectome map, then you wouldn't be, you'd be more careful about cutting into particular areas of the brain so that you wouldn't be severing electrical highways. Hmm. Huh. That's interesting. So we do that. That's and really then, interesting. I have a question for you, but I'll wait till we finish the podcast. Okay. You mean after? All right. Yeah. <laughs> so we do this um, yeah. and then what we do is that we then identify issues with particular connectomes, let's just say, or different networks of the brain. Mm. Then we plan a program for the patients, which uses repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation to induce neuroplasticity. And then I, mm. uh, um, adjunct that with other neuroplastic uh, interventions, whether it's a ketogenic diet or breath oh. work or visualization therapy, binaural beats, photobiomodulation, hyperbaric oxygen. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And that's it. We have options. Mm. We have things that you can try if it sings to you, mm. if it meets your risk benefit analysis, if mm. the opportunity costs aren't too great. Right? We don't deny anything, but I don't tell patients how to spend their money. Mm. But I definitely do start, all my consults were saying, if they don't do any of those things, it's also good. It's also fun. Yeah. Let's just get your sleep right. Yeah. Gosh, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I think it's really interesting how uh, diet, stress, sleep, uh, what was the other thing? Movement. Movement. There's, that stuff's available to everybody. Right. Exactly. Everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. It's available to everybody and we should be talking about those things mm. with everybody. It should form the basis of your consults. Mm. Doctors don't have time. No. GPs don't have time for it. GPs my you know, there's a there's a bit of a rise in lifestyle medicine now, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because you kinda have to have training in it to understand it enough to be able to talk to your patients about it. Mm. Um and then there's the world of biohacking, which I'm now deeply involved in as well. Mm. Biohacking simply means 
you know, little tips and tricks that you can use to you know, optimize and maneuver, manipulate your biology. Yeah, longevity so, and all of those things. Yeah, look, longevity is an interesting one. I mean, I get um, asked to speak at longevity conferences, and so I'm actually giving a talk in Singapore in May about longevity. But longevity is a little bit like playing with all the adjuncts without getting your basics right. Mm. So we're talking about longevity, and that's very important. And because it's sexy, it's getting the funding, which is yeah. obviously good for everybody. Mm. But I do actually kind of prefer complex chronic condition patients because it's about this is baseline. Yeah. But getting complex chronic conditions back to baseline and this mm. is for me the, the interesting part. Mm. And then longevity is what happens here. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But without getting to that baseline, there'll be no longevity. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's kind of the cart horse thing. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Ugh, man. Principles are the same, though. You yeah. can't, you can't even hope to achieve longevity no. without good sleep, without good, yeah. you know, hydration, nutrition, um, movement, sunlight exposure, breathing, yeah. Yeah. and all that. I mean, that's definitely part of it. And I think the reason why I keep bringing it back to this is because many people, many doctors, um, many skeptics are very quick to go, um, oh, there's no evidence for that, or that's very expensive, or whatever it may mm. be. Mm. But, you know, where I'm not going to stymie progress, interest, and research into areas because of your lack of interest, curiosity, or ignorance. Mm. So... 100% we talk about the things which are free and available to all, which make, which moves the needle the most. Mm. There is no denying it. Mm. If you don't get your sleep and nutrition and mindset, your psychological struggles, mm. the traumas that you won't deal with, whatever, if you don't get that under control, mm. you are wasting your time yeah. on these adjuncts. For sure. Yes. And yes. and they don't happen to they don't have to do this first and then that. They can happen together. Yeah. But you've got to be doing this. Yeah. Oh, you know, unfortunately time has got away from us, but that that is a perfect way to end actually because it's a it's actually doable for every person listening to this podcast. You know, even if they don't have a chronic disease, Anyway, now I'm talking too much. So thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Go well, live in joy. Ciao.